0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Families immigrate to the United States. There are many challenges that they face in leaving their home country and coming to this country, for example. And one of the challenges is maintaining their language and meaningful ties to their cultural identity. Because once you land in a new place, when you find yourself in a new place, there is a strong pool to assimilate. There's a strong pool to just let go of your culture and to try and blend in so that you don't stick out. And this challenge became very clear to me on a trip that I took to the grocery store a few years ago. I was in the... Uh, ethnic aisle at Giant. And just, you know, public service announcement, all the aisles in the grocery store are ethnic aisles, actually. But I'm in the uh, designated ethnic aisle at Giant, and I saw this sweet little abuelita, which if you don't know any Spanish, it was a little grandma, a little Hispanic grandma. She was a tiny little thing, but she was in there, she looked like she was about to handle up in somebody's kitchen. And so, as I like to do, I, I struck up a conversation with this abuelita in, in the ethnic aisle. And uh, I, I always like to do this because, one, I, I like to practice getting into somebody else's world. I, I like to practice my Spanish so that I know when my kids are hatching plots on me. <laughs> but I also like to practice humility because it's never very long before I start to run out of ways to express my thoughts. And so, me and Abuelita are going back and forth, and it's probably three to five minutes. You know, it's like a boxing match, y'all. I don't don't last the round very long. It was three to five minutes, and she, I started falling behind. I felt it slipping. It's the out-of-body experience where you're looking at, you're like, I don't know what she's saying. (laughs) And I'm smiling, and I'm nodding, and then she asked me a question. I had no clue, and I go, (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me? And then she asks me again, and I am just genuinely stumped, invisibly visibly so now. And then she looks at me, and this she gets this like very concerned look on her face, and she walks up to me very slowly. She cups my face in her hands and she says, Mijo, my child, Mijo, you don't know your language? <laughs> Now, for those of you who don't know, I am not Latino. <laughs> but she says, mijo, you don't know your language? You need to know your language. You need to know your people. You need to know who you are. And after being thoroughly rebuked, <laughs> I, I quickly find my words to say, uh, senora, Yo soy americano. Ma'am, I'm I'm American. And then this, this wave of relief goes on her face, and she's like, Oh, you're doing good. And I was riding high after that. And every time I would see her around the grocery store, she would give me this look, and she would just do this. Point her finger at me like, You're doing good. This encounter gave me a lot of food for thought as it relates to modern Christianity because for a high percentage of Christians across the country and for some of us in here today we don't know our language we don't know our people and we don't know who we are the pool of assimilation is so strong for us in our cultural moment we feel called to, to, to shed the old vestiges of Christian faith and to frame it up to be something more innovative, something more acceptable, something more quote-unquote relevant, something easier for us to live in this world. And some of us, we know the language, actually, of Christian faith, but worldly thinking and worldly practice has drained our faith of its substance. Now, here's the deal. We ought to encourage those who are testing out the Christian faith, who are trying to learn the language of Christian faith. And even though they may bumble and misunderstand and make mistakes, we ought to say to them, you're doing good. But for those of us who know that we're we're Christians and we identify as Christians, there is a different expectation on us because the wisdom of Abuelita holds. You need to know your language. You need to know your people and you need to know who you are. We have to be careful that we don't lose the language and the culture of our faith, of our heritage as Christians, because this is one of the primary means that we come to understand our own identity and our place in the world. And today we come to a text that has a most important theme. A language that we must know as Christians that shapes our understanding of our people and our identity. And that language is covenant. Somebody say covenant. This text in Exodus 24 is a central nervous system of many important themes in the rest of the book of Exodus and also in the rest of Scripture. But it's really centered around the covenant between God and his people. If we want to understand who we are, if we want to understand our people, then we must understand covenant. And today we're going to we're going to get into this text through, through two points briefly. We're going to see the meaning of the covenant and we're going to see the goal of the covenant. So, let's let's look at these these two points. Beginning with our first, the meaning of the covenant. And this is drawn from verses 1 through 8. This point is drawn from verses 1 through 8. And the goal of the covenant, the second point is drawn from verses 9 through 11. But the meaning of the covenant. Here's the deal. Biblical scholars will tell you that Exodus chapter 24 is the place in which the covenant that God has made with his people is formally ratified. That means it takes effect. It's the difference between house shopping and having your eye on a house versus signing mortgage documents. It's the difference between dating and liking someone and hanging out with them versus going to a covenant ceremony, putting a ring on finger, exchanging vows before witnesses and committing that in sickness and health, and plenty and want, and joy and in sorrow, as long as you both shall live, you will devote yourself to one another. There is something really important that's happening in this passage. And it is the formal ratification, the formalization of God's covenant commitment with his people. It is the place where God is formally bound to his people and his people are formally bound to him, this is this is uh, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. This is pinky swear, kids. This is what God is doing with his people. But you have to notice this context, right, to catch everything that's going on. Remember, when you read the Bible, you got to read it almost as if you're reading a, a screenplay or, or, or a, 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 a stage production. You're reading about characters. You ought to be envisioning setting. You ought to be smelling the smells and and hearing the sounds and seeing the sights of the scene. And we are at Mount Sinai, remember. And God is showing up on Sinai in stormy glory. It is very clear to them that this God is not to be trifled with. This is not the kind of God that you deal with casually. It would not be the kind of God you would skip out on for brunch. It's not the kind of God that you would give a lackadaisical uh, commitment to. It's not the kind of God you would play games with. It's not the kind of God whose word you would take or leave it. It was deadly serious to them. It was absolutely clear how serious this was. And what's astonishing about this passage is that earlier on in chapter 19, God tells Moses to tell the people, don't let them come up this mountain. This is not safe for them. I am holy. And I am so holy and so righteous that my holiness will break out against them as sinners. They are not able to come up this mountain to where I am. Because what you have to appreciate is that Mount Sinai is an anticipation of the tabernacle, y'all. This is called biblical theology, how you see themes in the scriptures and how they reach back and reach forward. This is a preparation for the tabernacle. Sinai, the tabernacle is to be a replica of Sinai. And what you know is that there are increasing degrees of holiness the higher you, you get, the, the more centrally you get into the tabernacle. And what we are to understand here is that as you ascend Sinai, it gets to be holier and holier. The holy of holies is the peak of the mountain, as it were. And only Moses is allowed to go up there. Everyone else is at the foot of the mountain. But it's a deadly serious context in which this covenant is ratified. And the people are given this, this formal opportunity To acknowledge the Lord's words, the text says all these words that Moses had inscribed from the Lord. That obligated them, that told them what their responsibility in relationship with God was to be. This is your relationship to me. And this is how we will determine whether you are faithful or not. There was no such thing as you from a place of sentimentality saying, I love God. No, 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 no. It wasn't about your warm, fuzzy feelings about God. Faithfulness and whether or not you loved God was determined by God. And God laid it down in the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and in the Book of the Covenant, which runs through chapter 23. And that's where the Ten Commandments are spelled out for Israel in their cultural context. Let me show you how this works out with respect to the foreigner. Let me show you how this works out with respect to those who are... uh, Who are poor. Let me show you how this works out in scenarios where you hurt one another incidentally. This is how this plays out. This is what you're obligated to do, and this is who you are obligated to become if you are to be faithful to this covenant. And God says, And I'm obligating myself. This is who I will be to you I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will keep my promises to you, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will love you. I will be your life. And this is what I'm going to do for you in this covenant relationship. And in order to formally ratify the covenant, to make it go into effect, the putting your John Hancock on it, as it were, comes in this ceremony that seems very foreign to us, doesn't it? Moses builds an altar and this altar is also got 12 pillars around it representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Because what you have to appreciate is this time God calls Moses up the mountain, but he tells Moses to bring his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of the people of Israel who were the representatives of the, of the people. They were their elders. They represented them already at this stage. We see representative leadership that is instituted by God in the plurality. Y'all see it? Okay. This is God's design. They come up as representatives. Moses didn't go up the mountain and come back down and say, hey, y'all. So what do y'all think we should do? No, no. The idea was that he was in communion with the Lord. The elders were in communion with the mediator and they gave the word to the people about how they were to live. They worked this out together and they were held accountable to the dictates of the covenant. But this altar is set up. And then this ceremony happens where Moses, with his assistants, they sacrifice what is called a burnt offering and then a peace offering. And when they do this sacrifice, they take Moses takes half the blood and he splashes it against the altar and he takes half the blood and he puts it in a basin and he saves it back for a minute. And these, these offerings, a burnt offering in the Bible, is most often a sin offering. It's an offering to take away sin. And a peace offering is an offering of celebration that because of the removal of sin, one has peace with God. And these offerings are made. And then Moses does something most strange to us. He splashes half of the blood against the altar of God's presence... The altar represents God's presence. And then he takes half of the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. And he said, all of these words of the covenant you shall do. And this is the way that the covenant is ratified. This is one of the most formative moments in the narrative when he dashes the sacrificial blood on the altar and on the people. And there are several ideas that are being expressed here that we moderns need to appreciate. The first one is that these ancients, these Israelites, along with many other ancient peoples, understood that there was a costly sacrifice that was required to atone for sin. It was costly. This was nothing cheap. The blood was a reminder that a life... Had been taken and had to be taken in order for them to appease the deity and to assuage the wrath of the deity. But there's another another meaning that's going on here, too. And it's this. Whenever a covenant was made in this cultural context, there was a formula for the way it was done. Just like if you're if you're buying a house, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for a contract. There's a standard form. You fill in different names. You put in different house prices. You put in different requirements or agreements in the negotiation. But in the general sense, it's the same form. And it was this way for covenants. And one of the things that you had in a covenant is you had stipulations. This party agrees to do this. And this party agrees to do this. And if each party is faithful to this agreement, to these stipulations. Here are the blessings that will be poured out on each of the parties. But if this party of the covenant is unfaithful, these covenants would detail the curses. And so the splashing of the blood is also meant to indicate a what is called in theological circles a self-maledictory oath. Self-malediction is to say, may my blood be spilt and my life taken if I should break this covenant. And it's splashed on the altar of God because God takes that that vow upon himself as well. And the people take this vow upon themselves. It's visualize it. Their blood will be on them. If they break this covenant, God has provided purification. Remember, God is making this covenant with people he knows are sinners. There are provisions, but it's if they wander away from the covenant provisions, which involved absolution, which involved the possibility of cleansing. God is about to spend 10 10 more chapters out of the book of Exodus to tell them about the means by which they can be Brought back into fellowship with God upon sinning. It's if they depart from the covenant in the whole. The blood is purification. It's cleansing. But it's also it's also a visualization of the curse of the covenant if they should break it. But it's also consecration, y'all. Because one of the ways that we, we are able to think more clearly about what happens in, in texts that are confusing like this is if we follow out and see how these practices are, are deployed in the rest of Scripture. And there are two other places where blood is sprinkled on human beings. And that those two other places are in Leviticus 14 when the priests are consecrated for their priestly ministry and also when lepers were cleansed of their leprosy. And so what we see is this is a consecration also of God's people to take up their priestly calling in the world. They are they are sanctified like the priests are sanctified, consecrated, set apart for the work of priestly ministry in the world. So there are all these illusions that are popping off in this picture. All of these truths are being communicated. In this text, it's a time of new life and celebration of their relationship with God. This is, this is the meaning of the covenant. God makes his promises to his people. His people make promises to him. There are blessings and cursings. There are stipulations that are given. There are, there are obligations on both sides. And the essence of the covenant, if you don't hear anything I say, The essence of the covenant has always been this from God. I will be your God and you will be my people. God commits. God is not about a casual commingling with people. And every once in a while when I feel like it, I might show up and do something. This isn't a well, when you're when you're doing good, he's not a fair weather God. And he's not out to produce a fair weather people. Right here we see that at the essence of the covenant is loyalty to the Lord. This is the expectation that God lays down for his people. Internal loyalty. Loyalty in our practices. Loyalty toward God with reference to our neighbor. And it all is sealed in blood. I've cleansed you. We have agreed that this covenant is a matter of life and death and breaking the covenant brings all of the curses on whoever breaks it. And I am consecrating you, setting you apart to be my people in the world. This world needs priests. This world needs people to priest for them, to intercede for them, to get in the thick of it with them, to bring them to know who I am and how good I am and that I provide. They don't have to languish out there. They don't have to be held under the grip of idolatry. No, there is a good God who does good things to bad people. Go tell my story. This is the meaning of the covenant. And in the text, we also see the goal of the covenant in verses 9 through 11, which brings us to our second point. The goal of the covenant. Look at it. Verse 9, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Friends, this is the goal of the covenant. What God has always been after is for his people to behold him and to feast with him. I don't know what you think life with God is or it's supposed to be. But right here in this most sober of moments, after God purifies his people, after he consecrates his people, he feasts with his people and he, he is in their presence. And the writer is he's reaching at language to describe it. But notice what he does with such reverence. He doesn't describe the person of God. He only describes the pavement under his feet. And that stole every bit of language from him. He could barely describe it. And do you notice the awestruck wonder of this text? That they beheld God. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. This is astonishing because every Israelite knew in their books. Then anyone who beheld God would surely die because he's too holy. He would short circuit them. And yet, because there was an altar built, because there was blood shed that purified, because there was blood that consecrated them, because God set them apart. Because this is the means by which God made them his treasured possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. Now they could behold God and feast with him and marvel. This has always been the goal of the covenant. In verse 3, the people say, All oh, the words that the Lord has spoken. We will do. And they say it again in verse seven, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then Moses sprinkles the blood on them and he says, cross your heart and hope to die. Because of who this God is. Now, listen, remember context. This is a this is a people that has been in slavery for 400 and some years. And they are fresh out. And they encounter this astonishing God. They, I imagine that every bone in their body really meant this. They were sincere. We'll do it. We see who you are. But they, didn't, they probably didn't know, just like you and I don't know, just what it would require. And just how the circumstances of their lives would challenge their ability to be faithful to this covenant. They didn't know how life would squeeze them and lead them to a place where they, they didn't feel like they could keep up this covenant anymore. They couldn't keep these promises anymore. This is too hard. This is too confusing. This doesn't seem right. What is God doing? How can things be this way? Because they had to battle the same evil enemies that we do. The world, the flesh, and the devil. With far less... Material witness than we have. They had to wander this desert. They wandered it 39 and a half years longer than they needed to. But this sticks out of the narrative, doesn't it? It sticks out of the narrative because we all know what it's like to have good intentions. Mm-hmm. To make vows and commitments. God, if you get me out of this. I promise, how many of you have ever prayed that? I remember, I remember being a college student. I had a little faint hint of Christianity, but I was lost as a ball in high weeds. I remember being bent over a planter in the middle of Fifth Avenue as the result of drinking too much. And I remember saying, God, if you give me I'll, I promise I'll never do it again. Next weekend. Same story. We know what it's like to be what the text describes as covenant breakers. We know what it's like to miss the mark here, to be covenant failures. And the thing is this we need to be more sobered about what that means, about what that failure means in this context. This is one of the most sobering texts you could imagine that the covenant is so serious. Listen, one of the indicators of how seriously you take the covenant of God is by how seriously you take the covenant of church membership and how seriously you take the covenant of marriage and how seriously you take the covenant of mutual belonging with one another. If we can't be faithful to these covenants, how can we be faithful to that covenant? If we are casual about these covenants, what is to make us think that we'll be serious about anything? There is a spirit of casualness these days. People esteem the churches that don't, that don't have the pretense. And you come in however you, however you want. And there is something to appreciate about that, but there's another way in which there is a liability in that. And that is that we will mistake casual dress for a casual relationship... To the God of the covenant. But none of the Israelites were confused at all about how serious this was. And yet. Over time. It won't be long y'all. In fact. It's going to be a few chapters later. They were going to be talking about golden calves. And we don't know what happened to that fellow Moses. And we know what it's like. To dance around the bottom of the mountain when God. Seems absent. And this is where they would wind up. And in the rest of the story, we see God's never stopping, never quitting, never giving up love. And I love that by the time we get to the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah revives for us a vision that echoes back to Exodus 24. After grievous failure, after covenant breaking, to the pages of the New Testament. And we get through the pages of the life of Jesus. He comes to the night in which he was betrayed and he took bread and he blessed and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And what we see is that all of the themes of the covenant run themselves to Jesus. How is it that that blood that was shed for the purifications of sins would actually come to fulfillment? It would come in the shed blood of Jesus. How would it be that the people, by, by being consecrated by this blood, set apart, how would they be consecrated after such grievous failure? It would be through the shed blood of Jesus. How could it be that God could remain faithful to the curses of the covenant, the maledictions That were due to covenant breaking of the stipulations. How could it be that God could be both just and gracious? It would be in Jesus who fulfills the covenant from both sides. Because as we look at Exodus 24, we see the visualization of covenant breaking, purification, and and calling, consecration. And that comes to its fuller fulfillment in Jesus, He is the visualization of our covenant breaking, and He's the visualization of God's desire to purify sinners and to sanctify and consecrate sinners so that we will be His kingdom of priests in the world. He reconstitutes the covenant, that's why it's a new covenant, not built on how well we keep it, but built on how well He kept it. It is done, it is finished. Peter says we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The writer of Hebrews talks about a new and better covenant because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. But there was a sacrifice once for all, the precious sacrifice of Christ that atones and after he atoned for our sins he sat down at the right hand of the father no priest ever sat down because their work was never done but hebrews tells us he made the sacrifice once for all sat down in kingly repose and now he deploys his people his consecrated people his covered precious people he's the mediator of a new covenant better than moses and the application is this we should repent for all of our casual disregard and flakiness with regard to the blessings of the new covenant. We have been united to Jesus. Our sins have been covered by the precious blood of the, do you know how precious that blood is? How precious is the flow that Makes me white as snow. No other fount. I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know that in our world. Something's value is determined by its rarity. If there's nothing that is like it. Its value is sky high. But I want to ask you, what is like the blood of Christ that takes away the sin of the guilty? What is like the blood of Christ that can consecrate broken, jacked up people like us? What is like the blood of Christ that can make a sinner into a saint? What is like the blood of Christ that can give you access to the God of heaven such that his hand does not break out against you? Woo! nothing but the blood of Jesus there is nothing like the blood of Jesus because the blood of Jesus represents the life of the son of God given for you and when you see how precious the blood is then you see how precious you are to God that he would allow this to happen that he would actually enact it himself how precious must you be Dear saint, precious to God in your sufferings, precious to God in your poverty, precious to God in your struggles, precious to God in your failings and weaknesses. Precious to God in your felt loneliness. Precious to God when the trials heap up. Precious to God when your work squeezes you. Precious to God when you're confused and don't know which way to go. Precious to God when your feelings just can't catch up with your knowledge. Precious to God when things you hold dear are slipping through your fingers. You are precious to God and the proof is in the precious blood of Christ shed for you. As John Owen said, there is no greater dishonor you could lay on the father, Christian, than to not believe that he loves you. How could you look at that blood, that life, that sacrifice laid down for you and not come away with the conclusion? How could you see it and come away with the conclusion that God is not for you, that God is against you? How could you look at that covenant commitment because you know what the good news of this text is the good news of this text y'all look at this this text is all about Jesus it's all about father son and Holy Spirit the people say all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient but what we need to see is that we can't echo that but that is the description Of the inner life of Jesus. All that the Lord has spoken. I will do. And I will be obedient. And it's that obedience. And that doing. That has been credited to you. So now you know what you ought to do. Repent. Repent. I want you to repent. Of any ways that you have. Taken lightly. Your belonging in this covenant community. Whether that has to do with church attendance whether that has to do with your participation in the ministry life of this church, whether that has to do with the way you use your words in small group with reference to our church, to bless or to curse, to encourage or to bring down, to tear down. We must repent of the ways in which we have not honored what it means to belong to the covenant community, to not know our I want you to repent of not knowing the language of our family. The callous way in which we just kind of pick through and we don't we don't want a Christianity that makes us break a sweat. It's a sweatless, bloodless, painless, costless Christianity that many of us live. We think that we can get Christianity. We can have the American dream and get a little Christianity thrown in chasing money Chasing activities for our kids because we didn't have them growing up. Not realizing that all the while, when you fail to expose and invest in the covenant community, when you fail to expose your kids to that, you are hardwiring them for self-destruction, anxiety, and a life of restlessness and dislocation. If they come to value the local church like you do, where will they be? So we need to repent. We need to repent of the ways in which we have not taken our marriage vows seriously and what it means to reflect the covenant. You know, marriage is the nearest illustration that God has given us of the nature of his covenant love and what it means to see the gospel clearly and the way in which we have been casual, the way in which we have refused or been slow to change. When it comes to the health of our marriages, when we're like, I know I need to do this, but I'm, I'm just, I haven't done it yet. Whether that's, I need to slow down, I need to stop working as much as I do, or I need, to, I need to carve out time to make this relationship better, or I need to prioritize this, or I need to be quicker to repent, I need to do better at encouraging, So many ways in which we have treated the covenant lightly. But don't you see that God has given us covenant community and the covenant of marriage as practice for for seriousness with the covenant to know how serious he is about us. You see how hard it is to be true to covenant commitment. Marvel at your God (laughs) and how true he has been and always will be evermore to the covenant. We have to be careful because the social realities that surround us do not support our covenantal sensibilities. They erode them. Casualness, individualism, modern identity conceptions where it's all about self-actualization. I need to succeed. I need to express myself. I need to I need to be true to myself. In a sense, yes, but in another sense, you need to crucify yourself because self is the very thing that puts us in a bad spot in the first place. We need corporate conceptions of who we are. I can't know who I am without you. And I need you to speak into my life and I need to submit myself to that. That's what it means to live covenantally. We have to know our language, our faith. We have to know our people, our covenant community. We have to know who we are, a kingdom of priests. And we have to live out of the delight of communing with God. And as you come to this table today, I want you to remember what it cost to bring you to the fellowship meal with God Almighty. And delight that just As he was present in that meal with Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, he is all the more present now by his spirit with us to feast. So let's do that in faith, knowing that his grace will be our nourishment and our supply. Amen. grace mosaic for more information about our church visit us online at gracemosaic.org